Welcome to episode 67 of Flying Podcast. I came across today's guests, uh, Andy Hardy and Sam Kidd on Facebook. I'm always on the lookout for folks that are attempting a long trip in a light aircraft and these guys are going to be flying uh, PA-28 from UK to Sydney, Australia, which uh, I think is well over 10,000 nautical miles. So it's going to be an adventure, that's for sure. I caught up with them just prior to their flight and before we started talking about the trip itself, I asked Andy and Sam what their flying experience to date has been. Uh, sure. Well, well um, this is Andy. Um, I've been um, flying powered aircraft uh, since 2000. Um, I've got something like, I think it's 560 hours uh, total time at this point. Um, almost all of that flying has been in um, uh, PA-28 types, actually. Um, uh, did, I did learn on a Tomahawk and um, uh, quickly transition to the Warrior, and I've been flying PA-28s, etc. So I've done a little bit of tail dragging on the, on the Citabria and um, flying a few other bits and bobs when renting, but bog standard Piper Cherokees and Warriors for me. And Sam? Yeah, so uh, I actually uh, started really initially with the uh, Air Cadets, so the ATC uh, with 2204 Chesham Squadron. I joined there when I was 13, um, primarily to do a little bit of gliding. Uh, I was only in the Air Cadets about 18 months, so. Uh, I wasn't really, um, I didn't really get enough hours in to do my first solo at age 14, but uh, I did go start going flying in powered aircraft with Andy when I was about 12, 13 years old. We kind of go way back ourselves. Um, and Andy used to take me flying. We used to go and do day trips to the Isle of Wight and all these different other places, etc. Uh, and really kind of, you know, enforced the bug that I had that was to, you know, become a pilot and, and fly fly light aircraft for, for pleasure. So when I was 15, uh, I had a trial lesson that my parents bought me up at Wickham Air Park um, with Wickham Air Centre, which is now merged with uh, Airways Flying Club and now uh, trading as Booker Aviation. Uh, and from there, my, my parents basically said, you know, if you want to continue this, you have to pay for it yourself. So I had to go out and get a day job on £3.80 an hour, I think it was, <laughs> and basically save up all my coins and, and trade that in for uh, what was, you know, when you're 15, a rather expensive flying lesson. So I managed to go solo at uh, 16 with eight and a half hours worth of flying time on Cessna 152. Uh, did all my um, hour building, etc., and did my cross-country navigation and actually passed my PPL skills test about two months before I was 17. So I had to wait uh, for, for my birthday to arrive before I could be issued with my license. Wow. And Andy and I continued to fly together uh, thereafter, you know, kind of cost-sharing and, and just hour building with each other on longer trips overseas to France and other places in Europe and around the UK. Uh, and then when I was 22, I actually went and did my uh, tail, tail dragger kind of conversion on the, the Havilland Chipmunk uh, and then bought into a share straight after. So um, I, I'm, I'm part of shared ownership of uh, Golf Bravo Bravo Mike Zulu, which is a lovely 1950s Havilland Chipmunk. I've got about 40 hours uh, so far within the Chipmunk. And, uh, and basically from there, apart from that, it's just been mainly PA-28, the same as Andy. Right. Have you uh, stuck with your PPLs or have you moved on and got other ratings? Uh, not not really. I did delve into uh, maybe looking into going commercial, but uh, after kind of looking at the financial aspect and the job market, etc., I just kind of decided that, you know, it was it was something I enjoyed doing and I didn't really kind of want to make it into a job, so to speak. Plus, you know, like I say, financing it was always an issue. So yeah. uh, I haven't taken anything else really outside of my tail, tail wheel conversion, just kind of got a standard PPL. 
Okay. Well, I um, I had some uh, challenges uh, uh, back in 2001. It was only a few months after I got my license with an inadvertent entry into IMC. Uh, so I um, I decided then it would be a good idea to uh, to get a uh, an IMC rating, uh, which I did the uh, the following year and um, used it precisely once and let it lapse. Uh, so actually, uh, just last year I went back and redid the uh, the IMC and uh, um, and uh, uh, regained the rating and have uh, uh, been out practicing uh, approaches uh, quite a lot since then um, because uh, this time around I want it to be a, a skill that I can use. Uh, and also just got myself a night rating because I think we may well need to do some uh, night departures or night arrivals on this trip to Australia. Okay, you, you, obviously you can't use your IMC abroad, but it does come in handy. It's no. a, a skill to have, isn't it? Well, you know, it's about it's, it's not just about um, having the right rating. Um, it's it's about um, having the confidence in your skills. And um, uh, yeah, and I think it has sharpened me up uh, tremendously, actually, especially when in in the Middle East, a lot of times it'll, it'll be VM, VMC on paper, but. Um, you know, 5K viz when you're, um, uh, uh, you know, a couple of miles above the terrain in a, in a very hazy environment, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's not a lot of uh, visual reference uh, in that circumstance. Okay. Uh, you say you've been sort of flying together for quite a while. Have you had any uh, previous long flight experiences? What's the furthest we've been, Sam? Uh, probably to, to Germany, I suppose, or up to Scotland. Um, uh, we, we did a Dam Busters raid earlier this year, and um, that was quite good fun. Uh, on the anniversary of the Dam Busters raid, um, uh, we headed out there, a couple of other aircraft in tow, and uh, went around the lakes uh, near Munster. Um, that was quite good fun. Um, uh, what else, Sam? We've, we've also, uh, you know, done uh, flown ourselves into private weddings and things in Belgium on the on the main continent, as well as going and doing some uh, some touring around Scotland and things. So, so I'd say, you know, our, our longest flight really is probably up to three and a half hours, which, when you take into consideration the the fuel range of uh, standard, you know, PA twenty eight, you know, that, that's kind of uh, on or about the, the limits of where you want to be to make sure you've got enough uh, contingency fuel available for any yeah. eventualities uh, along the way. But, uh, you know, this is kind of where the uh, the Australia trip is really going to kind of push our own mental uh, mental abilities in, yes. in flying, you know, potentially up to eight and a half hours with, with no autopilot and, you know, that kind of stuff. You'll Not to mention our uh, bladder endurance, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just noticed on Facebook something about uh, being fitted for a sheath, but we'll come on to that later. <laughs> I'm ha happy to disclose all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, you're doing the flight to, to Australia. What, what on earth prompted you to, uh, to pick London to, to Sydney? Well, 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 well I'll, go, I'll go first with this one then, um, Steve. So... Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm Australian, as you may be able to detect from yeah, my uh, stupid accent, yeah. um, and I've uh, I've lived here in the UK for the last uh, 24 years. I, I came over in 1999, thinking I'd stay for a year on a contract I had, and uh, of course met a girl and decided to stay. And um, you know, over the years, travelling back and forth to Australia to you know visit family uh, almost every year, um, I've often looked down from the 747 or whatever and thought, God, I could do that, you know, and and then of course. Um, having the license and then eventually having an aircraft of my own. And uh, one day last year, I was um, thinking about it again. I was actually flying over to Latuke, and I just thought, there's nothing really to stop me just keeping going. Maybe some practical considerations. Um, turned out to be a lot of practical considerations. So I just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, I, I'm, you know, it'll mean a lot to me personally to be able to fly all the way home to Australia um, under my own steam, uh, as it were. 
Um, so that's that's the primary motivation. Um, and then, of course, later on, we um, we thought about um, you know trying to raise some money for for charity at the same time. Uh, when are you planning to set off? Um, well, we'll be um, we'll be uh, leaving. Uh, our target date is to leave on the first of October. Um, the aircraft is actually already up in Denmark in Odense uh, on the island of Fern in Denmark, um, and that's because there's a, a bunch of guys up there at Unifly who are fitting the ferry tank uh, for us and. Uh, Doing uh, doing all of that work, and um, uh, we had to take the aircraft up there a couple of months ago for that reason. And um, uh, we'll be back up there next uh, next week, Wednesday, 25th, uh, just to uh, um, finalise all the preparations, uh, check the fuel flows. I've got some HF equipment, just needs a, um, some audio adjustments and some testing done. Um, finalise uh, um, uh, all the uh, um, little details, if there's a thousand little details I'm sure you can imagine yeah. um, and once we've got that testing done then uh, we, we may well be ready to leave uh, on the weekend uh, before the first um, uh, I think we'll probably be having to wait for a, for a little weather window because there's a few frontal systems uh, heading through Northern Europe at the moment so um, we'll see how we get on but on or, on or about the 1st of October. And you'll be coming back to the UK to set off from here? No, actually, no, we're going to so go, um, no, no point flying all the way back here and then flying uh, back, we're heading east, uh, we don't want to come back west. No, I can understand. So no, we're going to fly, we're going to fly due south from, uh, um, from Odense, that takes us down past Berlin, um, past uh, Nuremberg, Prague, uh, Vienna, uh, and if we've got clear weather, the first stop on the day will actually be on the north coast of Croatia, a place called Zadar. Um, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that uh, with the frontal systems, we'll get as far as Berlin, Prague or Vienna or thereabouts on the yep. first day and have to continue the next day. So how long is the trip, by the way, in time? We're, we're going to be, um, uh, well, we've allowed ourselves two months uh, for the journey. Um, on paper, there's, I think, 25 stops and um, uh, you can't always fly every day, um, sometimes because of bureaucratic reasons, um, you know, having to get permissions organised and sometimes because of um, weather. Um, so on paper, the trip should take us a month. Um, but uh, I, I know that um, in reality, it'll, it's much more likely to be about six weeks. So we've allowed uh, allowed two months uh, uh, off work to, um, to get it done. Um, during that time, we also have to fit in um, two 50-hour maintenance checks, one which will get done in Dubai, the other one in Kuala Lumpur. So uh, it all stretches the time out a little bit for us. Fatigue's also a massive consideration for us. You know, that's part yeah. of the reason why there are two of us on the flight deck rather than just uh, you know single man operations. You know, we're not going to we're not ferry pilots. It's not our career. We haven't got thousands of hours. Uh, worth of experience in terms of you know we do this kind of week in week out uh, you know we're going to have to really uh, adjust to flying these long legs uh, you know very very intensive legs with no autopilot um, over potentially hostile territories or, or thereabout uh, so being able to kind of split the workload and get days rest here and there is, is almost a necessity pretty much yeah Yes, I'm having flown, I think it was four and a half hours in a, an immersion suit recently. I was absolutely knackered for a week, so uh, best of luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> that, that, we, we, we put the immersion suits on for the first time uh, to take the aircraft up to Denmark, and that was um, four, four and a half hours worth of flying, and um, yeah, that that, uh, that that did tire us out a bit, yep. and uh, made us think, what the hell are we letting ourselves <laughs> in for? I, I think we'll, um, I think we'll uh, toughen up, right, Sam? 
<laughs> Completely agree with you on that one. At least I hope so. Yeah, say it with a bit more confidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to be fine for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your planned route uh, down to the Adriatic, and then roughly which way? So um, uh, uh, Corfu, um, uh, Sam, you've you've always wanted to land at Corfu, haven't you, mate? So um, it, yeah. Yeah. So, so just quickly to jump in with that, you know, I've, I've got family, friends that uh, basically go way back. So the friends basically stem for a family that went to school with, with my mum. So we used to go out there for family holidays and everything. And then when I turned a teenager, I used to go out there on my own for summer holidays and whatnot. And I've always been uh, very, very interested in, in Corfu. It's an island not only is it a beautiful place and I've got friends out there, but the, the procedures in and out of the airport are also... Uh, very unique to to the kind of airport and, and the region there so that's kind of one of my uh dreams to, to fly into corfu and and as soon as we were going past it in my opinion it, it was a must must do whilst we were going by yeah so so corfu will be the next stop after zadar and we'll um uh see see all the friends out there um then um uh still in greece we'll end up uh, right at the far um uh eastern end of crete a place called Citia. Um, and then from there, it's a, a bit of a chunk of water, a few hundred miles uh, to Port Side in uh, northern Egypt. Um, you have to land uh, at Port Side. We're really headed for the Cairo area, but um, uh, we uh, uh, we have to clear uh, the, the formalities in Port Side. Um, there's no Avgas there, though, so um, we'll continue from there to uh, an airport called uh, 6th of October, um, uh, which is just to the west of Cairo. Bizarrely, the planning, um, if the planning all goes on time, the date we're expecting to be at the 6th of October airport is in fact the 6th of October. Um, <laughs> but I'll we'll be surprised if it works out that way. Yeah. Um, we'll stay a couple of days in Cairo um, uh, with um, a chap called uh, Eddie Gold, uh, who runs a, um, uh, an organisation called General Aviation Support Egypt. They've been hugely helpful uh, in helping us put this trip together. So we're going to enjoy... Um, a couple of days uh, checking out the pyramids in the town there and having a few beers. Um, I think Eddie said we'll be the first um, general aviation flight to um, to um, to come and uh, spend time with them uh, in Cairo since the, the troubles. But you know these these things uh, these things pass and uh, uh, the place will return to normality. And I'm really looking forward to Cairo. Um, and then we'll um, we'll leave um, Cairo a couple of days later. Uh, and then we have to do exit formalities in Egypt only at specified ports, so we'll go out via Haggadah um, on the Red Sea. Um, do you want me to give you the rest of the route, uh, um, Steve? Yeah, just roughly what sort of countries you, you're heading through. Yeah, yeah. so after that, in a little less detail, then after that um, uh, we'll be going through Saudi Arabia, through Riyadh. Um, uh, next stop is uh, intended to be Dubai uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, I do a lot of work in Dubai and a lot of people out there, so that'll be a fun stop. Plus, we're going to get some maintenance done there. Uh, one of our sponsors, ExecuJet, um, is doing that uh, free of charge for us and providing us with our, our handling and landing and hangarage in Dubai. We're very grateful for that. Um, next stop is Karachi in Pakistan. Very long water crossing from Dubai to, to um, Karachi. Plus, you've got to avoid the Iranian airspace there in order uh, not to... Um, uh, have problems with your insurers actually, so we we sort of make a bit of a jink um, out to sea around the, the Iranian airspace and then back up into Karachi, um, uh, Nagpur in the middle of India. After that, um, and then over to Chittagong in Bangladesh. Um, the intent then is to overfly uh, Myanmar, uh, Burma as it used to be, uh, to Bangkok, and then uh, Bangkok down to Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur to Jakarta in Indonesia. 
Bali, and then the last uh, stop uh, before Australia will be um, a city called Kupang in West Timor, uh, from where it's, um, I think, uh, 400 odd miles water crossing then to Darwin uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia. Uh, we'll then um, make our uh, make our way actually with some friends who are flying up to meet us from uh, Canberra, fly, uh, fly with us, accompany us across to far north Queensland and down the east coast of Australia, eventually to Sydney. Hopefully we'll be there mid-November. Brilliant, just in time for summer, eh? Yeah, actually, yeah. Well, it's, it's already a very nice spring there, and uh, what we call um, what we call winter in Sydney is already a bit a uh, bit warmer than what you call uh, summer. <laughs> in the UK, so. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, what sort of weather considerations have you got on on route? Having spoken to other guys that have flown that way, uh, was it the intertropical convergence zone you need to to navigate? Absolutely. The, the ITCZ is the uh, the insurmountable obstacle that that uh, no matter how you um, add things up uh, lies between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. It's uh, its position changes as the Earth uh, tilts on its way around the sun every year. Uh, I suppose um, uh, you know many uh, many parts will be familiar with this, but um, actually I, I wasn't that aware of it, uh, not having studied ATPL subjects. Um, and I did a, did a fair bit of reading while planning this trip. and got a bit of advice from friends of mine who have done uh, this sort of a trip before. And uh, basically what it means to us primarily is waiting for the monsoon to subside. So this convergence zone where the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere systems come together um, produces a fair whack of weather and um, that gets a little bit amplified on the subcontinent because of the shape of the terrain and the uh, water masses there. And as everyone I'm sure is aware, there's a, a very pronounced uh, wet season with the monsoon. And we've just been uh, tracking actually um, the progression of the uh, the end of the monsoon. Uh, it should have departed um, the central area of India normally between the 1st and 15th of October, uh, so that we're able to get through there without uh, you know too much of the uh, full-on um, convective systems and the heavy rain. And at the moment, the good news is that the um, uh, the withdrawal of the monsoon is proceeding uh, on schedule. Uh, so that's good. Um, there, there are some other, you know, general weather issues. I think will, will, will you know, possibly cause us some grief or some delay. Um, uh, if you're going to fly through the tropics, you simply can't avoid convective weather. It's going to be there. And obviously, in a in a PA28, a fairly lightweight aircraft, um, there's a limit to how much you can get thrown around. There's also a limit to our stomachs, I think. Um, so uh, uh, we'll just have to do our best to avoid the worst of the convective. We'll, we'll try and depart as early as we can most days um, to avoid the um, the worst of the thermal build-ups uh, later in the day. Um, I think, uh, speaking of thermal weather, there's going to be a lot of uh, turbulence issues. I was speaking to one chap today uh, who's currently in Egypt um, doing some work out there in a, in a light aircraft, and, uh, um, you know, the, the thermals can be enough to move a toolbox off the um, off the back of the, of, off the floor on the back of his aircraft. Uh, so, um, so we have to watch out for that in the hot climates as well. Mm. And uh, lastly, generally poor visibility uh, in the Middle East, very, very hazy environment, and of course, sometimes sandstorms can make that worse. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just your average VFR afternoon trip, really. <laughs> uh, I think you've touched on this, but uh, Avgas is getting to be uh, in short supply around the world. I presume that's one of your major considerations, uh, fuel issues. Have you sorted that one out, do you think? Yeah, completely, uh, Steve, agree. It, it's, it's the biggest issue. I, I think if you give this another couple of years, it's going to become uh, at some point soon um, practically impossible yep. um, to fly, uh, a, you know, an Avgas fueled piston aircraft uh, around the world, and, you know, or, or to somewhere like Australia. Um, 
I've spoken to people who've done the trip, you know, even five and six years ago, and there are places where they could get Avgas like a Metabud, where I'm told now you can't. Um, so it gets progressively more difficult. Um, so perhaps in in, uh, in future years we'll be looking to do this in diesel or turbine-powered aircraft, and that'll be our only choice. Yeah. Um, for now, however, yes, I, I've um, I've had to go to some lengths to make arrangements to get fuel. We've got a, um, a great uh, team uh, in Egypt, General Aviation Support Egypt, who are helping us with that. And, um, you know, in some instances, you simply have to get fuel put on a truck and carry down. In fact, uh, um, today, um, uh, someone is uh, trucking some jerry cans for us from Cairo down to a place called El Guna, which is north of Hagada on the Red Sea, um, because there's there's just no other way that we would be able to, to reach um, Riyadh unless we had some fuel to pick up on the way. Um, similar issues exist um, in in uh, in India and um, Indonesia and uh, places like that. Um, in those countries, there are um, companies that will provide you with the avgas, but you've got to prearrange to have the barrels uh, delivered to where you're going. And they're 44-gallon drums in the old money, 200-litre drums today. Um, and uh, you know you have to buy whole drums. So if you need one and a half drums, too bad you're paying for two of them <laughs> yeah. at what are already quite inflated prices. I bet. Uh, and what sort of uh, fuel consumption you're looking for? I think I used to get nine US gallons an hour out of my PA28. Yep, yep. Well, the 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 planning figure we we've we've done for planning our our range is is a bit more aggressive. It's ten US gallons an hour, and um, that was how we initially sort of picked the um, locations we need. Um, by by looking at that, it's kind of a uh, almost a worst case cruise number. Um, and uh, we we then went ahead and had a fuel flow meter fitted to the aircraft. So that we could know in in much more detail um, what we achieve at what power settings, and uh, and actually, uh, you, you, similar to your own experience, um, I think we saw uh, 9.2 gallons an hour fairly consistently uh, when we were doing some uh, consumption checks here before we left um, uh, for Denmark, and we did a little bit better than that on the way up to Denmark. Uh, have, having the fuel flow meter to let us accurately measure that um, uh, is absolutely uh, vital for a trip of this uh, this sort of range. And um, uh, we, we also need to be able to uh, choose each day um, what power setting we're going to be able to cruise at, depending on the, uh, on the, on the uh, air density at the flight level we'll cruise at. And sometimes for some of the longer range uh, segment sectors, we're going to have to cruise slower. Um, at 55% power settings, uh, the POH tells us we can expect 7.2 gallons an hour. We'll get there very slow, but we'll have um, much greater range yes. uh, by doing so. So we kind of have to juggle that a little bit, and there's going to be a range of settings that we use in different circumstances. Okay, going on to the aircraft. It's your PA-28, and it's, uh, ba it's based in London, but it's currently being fitted with its ferry tanks in Denmark, you say? That's right, yeah. It's based at Wickham, just outside uh, West London, and it's up at um, uh, Unifly um, uh, in Odensa. And it's having the ferry tanks fitted, that's right. So the major change, it's, it's a bog-standard Cherokee, 1966 C-model Cherokee with the 180 engine. Um, it's, in, it's in good shape. It's got a nice, uh, um, nice paint job and it's been re-upholstered and uh, uh, it, it's in very good condition, uh, as you would hope, especially the engine. Um, but uh, we do have to, to fit um, a few minor uh, mods. We've, we've got a nice um, you know, Garmin uh, GNS 430 uh, in the aircraft. Um, so that makes uh, makes navigation a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, we've got um, um, uh, fuel flow meter fitted, as I mentioned, the um, uh, FS450 fuel flow meter, um, and that integrates with the Garmin GPS. So, 
So that means the Garmin will calculate for you things like uh, LFOB or landing fuel on board uh, or landing reserves so you, you understand, you know, at your current uh, fuel consumption, at your current uh, ground speed, um, how much uh, fuel you're likely to have left at your destination. Obviously, if that number goes to zero or, or negative number, you, you might decide you want to divert and go somewhere else. So, <laughs> um, so that, that's a really key piece of gear for us. That and the, and the ferry tank, obviously, um, you know, I think we could do the journey just on the standard fuel, um, especially by cruising slow. Um, and uh, like I do a little bit more trouble to get fuel delivered to some far off places. Yeah. But I think that having the ferry tank, which gives us um, considerably more range, depending on uh, how heavily we load the aircraft, um, you know, we can get uh, several hours more range uh, out of that. Um, so that, that just makes us feel a lot safer. Yeah, I bet. Uh, as well. How much fuel do you have in total then with your, with your Ollie tanks? Well, in theory, um, we could take uh, 66 gallons in the... Um, uh, in the ferry tank and 48 in the wing, so that's um, uh, 100 and uh, where are we there? 112 uh, US gallons, more than doubling the normal capacity of the aircraft. But weight limitations won't allow that, um, and I think that we'll find ourselves uh, cruising with um, with about um, uh, 85 uh, US gallons, and I think that'll that'll get us to where we need to go. Yep. The the other um, uh, major addition I had to make to the aircraft, which did cost quite a lot of money, uh, was a HF system. Because uh, when you're um, in these more remote regions, uh, there's there's simply um, you know vast areas where you can't communicate on VHF, unless you're lucky enough to get a relay um, through through higher traffic, which which you, know, you might be able to organise. But um, you, many many areas um, don't really have the concept of VFR like we know it here, and require you to follow um, even as a VFR flight um, IFR like um, uh, restrictions. Uh, and that includes remaining in communication uh, with ATC. It's also, you know, mandatory in a lot of areas um, where there are air defence identification zones, ADIS, on, on their borders that you are properly identified and uh, granted permission before you cross their border. Otherwise, they'll come out and intercept you and shoot at you, I'm told. So um, we don't want that. So, so having the HF so that, you know, in the middle of, for example, the Arabian Sea, we can make sure that the Pakistanis are... Uh, are happy for us to enter their airspace at the agreed uh, waypoint uh, is pretty important to us. So we actually had a, a modified um, a ham radio um, system uh, installed, uh, which uh, which we bought off eBay. So that was pretty good. And the um, the, the guys up at Tate Hill Aviation not only put that in for us, um, but they fitted a, a HF antenna and an automatic uh, antenna tuning unit, an ATU, to the aircraft. And uh, that all works really great. In fact, they're just doing some tests on the ground. Uh, in um, uh, in Wickham, we were able to communicate with people who were um, in uh, in Romania. So uh, I'm I'm convinced that that works. Very good. Does your basic RT license cover you for uh, HF? Uh, uh, sadly, no. Um, our, our licenses come with a VHF restriction. Uh, so I, I I went and did the um, the, the HF uh, RT uh, paperwork uh, test. Um, I did that uh, a few months ago. Um, and uh, Leon up at Wickham, who does the uh, does the test there at the Heli Centre at Wickham, uh, he he told me I think it had been four years since anyone had come and asked him for a HF exam. Um, so uh, uh, so I did that, and it wasn't too difficult. I actually had a, a, a an amateur radio, a ham radio license as well from when I was younger. So so I knew the subject matter anyway. It wasn't too difficult, and uh, all that does is remove the, the VHF only restriction from your license, and uh, now we're we're legal to. Uh, to go and communicate on HF. So 
Um, I think increasingly people are using sat phones for this instead of HF. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of the guys on the North Atlantic ferries can do that. But when I looked into it, um, actually, uh, uh, out, out in many parts of the Far East, um, places like Burma, um, places uh, like Pakistan, they, they, they don't have a number for you to call on the sat phone, for one. Um, so it's very difficult to make that work in practice. Um, and another practical issue, if you're in a light aircraft and a, and a noisy flight deck, um, I've spoken to some people who, who've struggled with the sat phones because they just couldn't make themselves heard. They don't come with noise cancelling uh, microphones. It's all well and good if you're in something which is pressurised and nice and quiet inside. But um, So putting all that together, I decided I had to bite the bullet and uh, put the HF in. Uh, and moving on to planning, I mean, the flying is, it sounds hard enough, but I guess uh, all the bureaucracy is, is, well, it surpasses the the flying in terms of uh, pain in the arseness, isn't it? Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, there, look, there are two different aspects of the, to the planning. One one which I really enjoy, and, and thanks to Jefferson, who've been extremely kind in uh, uh, donating us um, uh, charts and, and access to, to, to JetView as, as part of the sponsorship deal we've done with that. Actually, planning the route is a real pleasure and kind of fun and kind of interesting. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the logistics planning, uh, not only the fuel, as we've touched on, but um, organising visas. Um, uh, Sam, I don't know how long you had to queue up at the Bangladeshi Embassy, for example, but I had to go back there three times until I got the form right. Um, so um, so that, there's that aspect of it. And then... Um, uh, the overflights. Now, the overflight and landing permissions, for example, if we're going to fly over Burma, we need some sort of formal permission from that government to do so, uh, or if we're going to land in Pakistan or something similar. It's not like within Europe where, where uh, we're just able to you know, cross borders on, on filing a flight plan. Um, and and it, it's a lot of paperwork, and it's also um, a bit of a time constraint. In a lot of cases, you have to file within X number of days and be there within a certain quite tightly defined time window. And in practice, the only way to do this um, is to have someone on the ground acting as your agent. Yes. Uh, and again, we've, we've used, uh, there are many overflight agencies. We're, we're very happy with the work that's been done for us by GASE, General Aviation Support Egypt, uh, on that front. Uh, from the people I've spoken to before, it seems that some airports they just can't do enough for you, and uh, you know bend over backwards. Whereas other places, mm. you know, they'd rather not see you in the first place, and will give you good shafting money-wise. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think there's a third category as well, where it's just lawless, and uh, people have their hands out for a bit of bucksheesh. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and again, you know, organising ground handling in advance through a third party, where if there's money to be paid, it's already it's already agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah doesn't eliminate that issue but it does it does massively reduce it um but a very big part of the costs is what we anticipate uh we'll have to pay for some of that handling uh which is money for old rope in a lot of cases but you you've just really got no choice yep. you, you have to you have to accept it one tip that uh, a lady that flew down to australia a few years ago sheila dyson that i did a, a, an early podcast with and she said was oh, yeah. uh, uh, wear some pilot's epaulets, you know, get get a proper pilot shirt so you, you look oh. like you know what you're doing. <laughs> funny, funny you should mention that, uh, yeah. isn't it, Sam? We, we've we've had a few people give this advice to us, haven't we, mate? It's, it's, it's quite ironic, really, because I remember when I was uh, 12, 13, and, and really eager that I was going in my first powered aircraft when Andy took me, um, the first thing I asked him was, should I get some epaulets? Should I get a pilot shirt? And obviously, when you're doing, uh, you know, private flying, the, the obvious answer is, well, no. Yeah. You know, don't, you, you don't, you don't want to look like 
an idiot, you know. <laughs> but uh, now all of a sudden my dreams come true that I can wear my pilot shirt and pilot epaulets flying the real aeroplane, but not actually having to have uh, an air transport pilot's license to to earn them. It cost me sixteen quid rather than sixty grand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so we have both. I think rather sheepishly invested in uh, some pilot shirts and some epaulets, and um, uh, that 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 comes from you know, this first-hand experience from a number of people we've spoken to, and you've had the same comment there. Um, there are just some places where when you get out of your aircraft, if you don't have some stripes on, eventually someone's going to point a gun at you and suggest you're on the wrong side of the security fence. It's going to be yeah. hard to explain otherwise. Uh, and also just for getting, uh, uh, getting service in the, in the flight, flight briefing offices and things like that. Um, I, I, I have the impression that problem starts when you leave Greece uh, and go to Egypt and kind of uh, sustains itself until you've left Indonesia and got into Australia. Okay. Um, I think, though, Sam, if we land in Darwin with the epaulets on, um, there'll, there'll be, there'll be um, a few people willing to take the piss out of us. I'll have to remember to take them off in the therapy there. Agreed. Yeah. Have them sewn on the outside of your immersion suit, eh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be keen to do that, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'll get some proper ones like off eBay, your military surplus, surplus like from a, a rear admiral from Japan or something, or something really. Uh, well, I, I wish I still had my cap from when I was in the Air Force. I was in the Australian Air Force when I was young as an avionics engineer, not as a pilot, I hasten to add. Um, so I, I was hoping I could find my, my cap, but I can't find the thing, so uh, we'll have to do a capless. Uh, so special equipment for yourselves then uh, you mentioned the aircraft um, we mentioned the immersion suits are they the you know the usual sort of cold weather types that uh, i've been used to no no actually we we would boil in the bag if we wore the uh, north atlantic immersion suits um we're working with uh, i don't know if you know sims aerospace uh, Sem, uh southeast marine uh, oh, aerospace yes. over in kent yeah yeah and um they're able to um to supply us with um uh immersion suits and and a very um a compact two man raft um, which fits under one of our front seats because uh, we, we have no back seats with the ferry tank in there. Uh, and those immersion suits are temperate climate immersion suits. I'll be honest, they still feel pretty darn hot when you got them on, um, but uh, they're nothing like as um, thermally protective as the ones used in the North Atlantic. And that's so that you can you know, survive the high temperatures um, uh, you know, in the cockpit as well yep. as in the sea in, in, uh, in some of those parts of the world. Um, so they're, they're lighter weight, even though they, they do still feel relatively heavy. Um, comes with a with a, um, a, a rubber neck seal and uh, rubber booties. And uh, w- one of the big challenges we've been working on this week actually is how on earth are we going to relieve ourselves so when we're hermetically sealed in these suits <laughs> for eight and nine hours. And I wonder if you've any experience with that, Steve. You can share with us. No, I just um, just I'm uh, good at holding it in. <laughs> Well, I, I'm 50 years old now, and I'm less good at holding it in. So. Which takes us back to uh, the thing on eBay, uh, on uh, Facebook, sorry, which was the uh, fitting for the sheath. Well, um, that's that was today's task. Now, now I'll I'll share with you, um, Steve. You can edit it out if you don't want to play this part, but I will share with you that um, uh, the people that supply the um, it's a kind of a condom, yeah. but it's not slippery. It's it it, um, it, it, it adheres itself. Uh, to the gentleman, um, and uh, and it has a tube uh, which uh, which goes down to a, a bag you attach to your leg, and you can wear it inside your immersion suit. The young lady that um, I spoke to yesterday, who supplies this equipment or works for the people that supply the equipment, um, shared with me that it's actually used by a number of pilots and deep sea divers, because of course those boys have got the same problem. Yeah, you, you learn so much doing an exercise like this. And um, one of the things she sent me in the sample kit. Um, 
she sends you a sample kit so that you can decide which is the uh, the right options, including the right size sheath. And um, <laughs> included in the uh, sample kit is the is a, is a it's it's a little um cardboard thing cut out to different girth uh, dimensions, <laughs> and you have to measure yourself against it. Yeah, I've measured myself, and I know where I'm at. Sam's yet to come, so we'll have to see who wins that battle. <laughs> oh, <dear>. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't measure each other then. You're not that good uh, friends. No, no, that, that was, was one of the options. But uh, <laughs> what was that, Sam? It was suggested. It was suggested and quickly, uh, uh, quickly rejected. <laughs> so you've been pretty honest with the lady, have you? About uh, what size well, you well, require? <laughs> well, um, I, I've not sent the I've not sent the the order in. That order goes in tomorrow, and uh, I think I think I think it's on us to be honest about it yeah. uh, because otherwise they'll leak if you buy one that's too big. So. <laughs> Uh, are you going for uh, PLBs and spot trackers and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I just took delivery yesterday of a um, uh, nice little, very small PLB, which you can put in your pocket of your immersion suit. It's called a PLB-1. Um, Rescue Me is the brand, um, which Southeast Marina supplies. So, yeah, dead chuff with that. It's, it's smaller than a cigarette packet. It's a little bit smaller than my BlackBerry phone, actually. Uh, so that looks good. And I've also got the spot tracker. Um, so there's a bit of an overlap there because they're both capable of, you know, you push a button and say help and uh, it goes up to the satellites and then some rescue agencies get your details. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, you know, there's two of us, so it's good to have two, yeah, uh, yeah. two of these devices in case we get separated. And, of course, the wonderful thing about the spot tracker, I think the, 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 more, the more useful thing um, is uh, it's got one button you can push when you land, which sends a prearranged message along the along the lines of we have landed and we're okay yeah. um, out to any number of um, email addresses and uh, and uh, text you know SMS uh, message numbers as well, and, and that's just great because um, when you do land at a lot of these places, you, you're pretty soon swamped with um, you know some local officials who want you to sign forms and organise fuel and all that, and you don't have time to call your friends and family who are anxious about you. So one push of the button, and uh, pretty soon everyone knows you're okay, and, and you can call them later when you're in the hotel. So, yeah, um, that was an um, important piece to get, I think. Uh, warn your friends and relatives that the uh, the spot tracker in my experience does freeze from time to time, so it will show you in the same position for two or three hours and then suddenly flirt along. So, you know, people, if they are following you, think, oh, God, they've died. Yeah, well, I've teased a few people and told them that um, the spot tracker is an excellent device for letting you know at what point we've drowned in the Indian Ocean. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I have, uh, we have instructed friends and family not to panic. Yeah. Uh, they'll know if there's a problem because we'll push the push the help button, and um, and otherwise it's uh, it's just making its best efforts to tell you where we are from time to time. Yeah, they'll find it in a shark at some later date, no doubt. I'm less worried about the sharks, more worried about the uh, Yemeni and Somali pirates, if I'm honest. But yeah. Do you know of all these things that you're mentioning? You're getting shot at in Iran and arrested in Pakistan and tossed about in turbulence and eaten by sharks. And why the hell are you, <laughs> are you going? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I guess we've told everyone we're going, so we've got to go now. Yeah, there right you then. go. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, are you taking like backup GPSs in, in in addition to the Garmin? Yes. Um, so so we've got the Garmin, and obviously we've got the you know the regular analog um, uh, devices like VOR and NDB and DME and all that. But of course, that stuff's useless in the middle of an ocean. Um, so uh, the the uh, the backup uh, GPS. Um, is in fact uh, you know one of those little Bluetooth things that connects to the iPad. Yeah. Um, that works pretty darn good in my experience. They're so superb, um, aren't they? I think you want I think you want two of everything critical. 
Uh, and of course, you know, we we just need to limit um, limit weight and clutter in the cockpit as well. So that seems to be the best compromise. Yes. Well, there's no room at all in there, is there? Especially if you've no back seat. God knows where you're going to put all your stuff. Um, yeah, on our laps, uh, yeah. basically in between us and under the seats, and yeah, uh, no, no no room for a banana the way we've got this planned. Um, so I'm not sure what we'll do for lunch. <laughs> uh, are you getting uh, plenty of sponsors uh, coming through? Yeah, we've had a few. So the most important thing for me is uh, is raising money for the charity we want to support. I, th- I think that if you if, if if you don't do something like that, all you are is a couple of guys with you know, with some you know some good luck and some money who are burning an expensive hole in the sky on an exercise like this. Yep. And we didn't want it to be that way. Um, so we're supporting Oxfam. Uh, Oxfam um, are a great charity, very very efficient. They they waste less money than um, than most charities if you look at their numbers. Yeah. And um, they have projects on the ground in many, uh, in fact, almost all of the places that we'll overfly. Um, they're doing fantastic work with the provision of uh, fresh water uh, for people, you know, in places like Syria, um, which is not too far off track, and and places like uh, Pakistan and uh, uh, Myanmar and uh, Bangladesh and other projects as well, microfinance projects. Uh, to help people become self-sufficient. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge supporter of Oxfam. And so we thought to ourselves, well, you know, could we, um, could we do some good there? It's 10,500 nautical miles uh, from London to Sydney as the crow flies. That's going to take us a little bit more than that. But we thought we'd go for raising um, a pound a mile, um, uh, if we can, for Oxfam. So we are asking people to, to, uh, to donate to that cause. Um, if you go to our website, um, www.golf-alpha-tango-yankee-sierra.co.uk, that's the aircraft registration, you'll see a link there to um, fundraising page uh, for, on Oxfam's Everyday Heroes website. There's also links there to, um, to our Facebook pages and uh, Twitter. Uh, we'll be tweeting and Facebooking uh, using the hashtag uh, Cherokee Challenge Flight. Um, and uh, so we're hoping that people, you know, take some interest in what we're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, donate 20 quid or 50 quid or 10 quid or whatever they can afford. Uh, we're already more than a third of the way to our goal. We haven't even taken off yet. Great stuff. Um, so uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty keen on doing that. Um, and besides the sort of charity side of things, um, we, we have had um, uh, some, uh, some corporate sponsors uh, whose logos are going on the side of the aircraft um, uh, uh, agree to help us out. Um, in some instances, uh, with a little bit of cash uh, towards the costs. Um, and uh, in in, uh, in uh, several instances, uh, contributing um, uh, equipment or services that we need. I've mentioned uh, Jefferson, for example, uh, who've been uh, very, very supportive um, of us as well. So, yeah, very grateful to that. And I do think it is important, you know, not just to be the rich guys burning a hole in the sky, but to think about the impact we're having on the world around us as we go. Great stuff. Uh, what are you going to do with the aircraft once uh, you've arrived? I would love to say I'm going to fly it back, but there's a few challenges there. Um, one is we don't know how we'll feel. You know, I, I think I'll still love Yankee Sierra as I do now when we step out in Bankstown Aerodrome in Sydney. There is a small chance, of course, that we'll uh, we'll never want to see the thing again. Um, so, and, and wish to buy something faster <laughs> to come back in. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the other uh, the other real issue though is that. Uh, um, uh, you know, we have to return to, to, to the world of business and uh, come back to work. Um, and I won't really have the time, uh, certainly in the next year, to fly back. What I'm actually thinking of doing um, 
is uh, is uh, getting the wings taken off the aircraft and having it crated up and uh, sea freighted back to the UK yeah. uh, because. Um, uh, you know, I could sell it out there, but of course we've spent so much money on the extra equipment for the aircraft, we probably wouldn't recoup that, and I'd, I'd like to keep the aeroplane. So I think it'll be coming back by sea, having a little holiday yep. uh, on the ocean. Great stuff. The one benefit, obviously, about uh, flying ourselves to Australia in a PA-28 is that the journey back, although it's a 26-hour flight, including connections, is that economy will feel like luxury the whole way. <laughs> yep. Yes, it will. <laughs> Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on, guys, and uh, best of luck, and uh, we'll uh, track your progress with interest. Steve, thanks so much for, thanks um, so much for, for your interest and attention on it. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Uh, I'll put all the links to your uh, website and uh, Spot Tracker, etc., on uh, on the Flying Podcast website as usual. Okay, great. Cheers. Mate, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Really, really grateful. And, um, you know, if you want to do um, a, a sort of shorter one, uh, when we're back to re- re- recap and just prove to people that we survived it, um, we could do something along the lines of, you know, what did we learn or something like that. I would love to. Love to have you back on. Yeah, big thanks to Andy and Sam for sparing the time to uh, come on and chat about their adventure. I'm hoping they'll come back on the podcast when they return to the UK in the new year. My good friends uh, Grant and Steve down at um, Playing Crazy Down Under podcast in Australia may well catch up with Sam and Andy after they arrive in Sydney, so do keep an eye or, or an ear out for that podcast towards the end of the year. You can see all of the links mentioned in the podcast on the Flying Podcast website. That's uh, www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Don't forget you can support the podcast by clicking on some of the links on the Flying Podcast website or maybe order something aviation-related uh, via one of the Amazon links on the site too. There is even a donate button on the homepage for those of you uh, that would like to help in a more direct way. Well, that's it for another episode. As usual, if you have any good ideas or would like to uh, appear on an episode, send me uh, an email to steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. And as ever, thanks for listening.